Hi, everyone. Welcome to ACB webinars. First of all, thank you to all of our participants. Thank you to our allies, ASEM, EGADE, GAN, Generation S, Global Corporate Venturing, Innova360, IBCA, LAPCA, and BC Academy. Let me introduce our two speakers for today. It's a pleasure to have Paul Beraditaki. He's a partner of Pantera Capital. As a partner in Pantera, Paul focuses on the firm's venture capital and hedge fund investments. Since joining in 2014, he has helped launch Pantera Venture Fund 2 and the firm's currency fund, executing over 60 investments. He has also performed partnerships in other startups and he has a BS from the University of California in Berkeley. Thank you, Paul, for being today. We also have Thomas Rush, he's the director and the, at the investment platform at Consensus Mesh. Thomas partners with the 130 founders in the lab's portfolio to support their growth and development and leads lab's communication efforts and fund operations. He also serves as an advisor to select early stage companies. Thank you, Thomas, for being today with us. So let's get started. Yeah, so a little bit about our firm. So Pantera Capital has been uh, investing into blockchain and cryptocurrency since 2013. It was founded by Dan Moorhead. He used to be the CFO and head of global macro trading at Tiger Management. So he's got a very deep uh, finance and hedge fund background. Um, for myself, I mean, I joined Pantera in early 2014 to focus on early stage investments. Before Pantera, you know, I was an economic consultant and I also did some business development and growth and fundraising for some early stage startups, uh, especially during the daily deal boom in 2009, 2010. And then I worked as a VC at my previous fund focused just on mobile, mobile apps and mobile infrastructure. So did an early stage investment app, Annie, which turned out pretty well for us. And then with Pantera, you know, I've done everything from investing to most of the early stage investments that we've done both on the equity and also on the early stage token side. And then uh, helped bring on Joey Krug, who was the founder of Augur. And, uh, you know, from there, you know, we now sort of manage four different vehicles, a vehicle that invests into Bitcoin, a vehicle that invests into equity, a vehicle that invests into early stage tokens, and then a vehicle that invests into liquid tokens. Uh, so me, Dan and Joey are the general partners. Um, you know, overall, we manage about $4 billion investing into this space. And, you know, similar to Thomas, I mean, my role has you know, sort of shifted from, you know, sourcing and executing deals to a lot of just portfolio management and helping our portfolio companies. And, you know, we do that by building out our platform team, but a lot of that is just a lot of individual hands-on work. And so just, you know, that, that's really just one of the, the best jobs that I, I, I think I can do right now is just spending a lot of time on our portfolio and, and being really hands-on. Great, thank you. So today we have, you know, obviously the, the chat is gonna be about decentralized finance. And we know that in February this year, the total value lock in DeFi reaches reach an all-time high of 45 billion. It represents an exponential growth since the beginning of 2020. So first of all, what's DeFi and what are the main value, the main drivers for this growth? Paul, maybe you can start with you and then Thomas. Sure. So, you know, we feel like we've been investing into decentralized finance. Uh, really since the beginning, I mean, you know, for us, decentralized finance is being able to move value uh, in a peer-to-peer -peer way without 
uh, going through intermediaries that take uh, sort of unnecessary fees and, um, you know, and, and for us, like it started off with just Bitcoin, um, you know, for us, like we're, we're seeing Bitcoin being a store of value, Bitcoin being able to, uh, you know, send value in, in, in a way that, you know, people can, can do so, whether it's consumer to consumer or business to business. And then of course, it's really evolved into what we see it uh, now, which is uh, sort of being able to send value in a peer-to-peer -peer way, but do so while sort of maintaining your own funds and do so in a sort of non-custodial way. And, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, the value locked up in DeFi uh, and, and most of it is is really just, I, I think on Ethereum right now has really grown from 1 billion to, I think it may just hit, you know, 50 billion sometime soon. And I, I guess for us, I mean, we see a few different reasons why this is really starting to take off, um, you know, I'd say early to mid last year. I think part of it was the pandemic, um, you know, with people looking for other methods to gain yield, uh, DeFi, you know, provided that way for people to get a lot more yield than what uh, they were normally able to do. So whether that started off with stable coins or whether it started with other sorts of, of yield farming techniques. I also think that uh, the fact that you can get liquidity on tokens and be able to utilize tokens for sort of growth hacking and user acquisition strategies for a lot of DeFi projects have really allowed uh, people to you know, participate. And I think part of the reason why people are able to actually issue these tokens and have it go to the public is because of just you know, the ability to have these tokens actually be useful around things like governance. And so I think Compound launching last year and implementing governance, I think was sort of you know, a monumental step in addition to you know, things around farming has really just allowed a lot of people to come into the space and be able to participate, be able to actually feel like their voice is being heard and you know, be able to get some yield out of it too. And you know, I think the other thing that I think is also important is the fact that there are decentralized exchanges and decentralized liquidity pools uh, to actually provide this option of getting tokens in the hands of users. And so, you know, I started off with Uniswap, you know, being able to have, you know, a bit more of a friendly user experience. And then of course, other platforms kind of getting into the mix and providing more liquidity. And so I think the user experience, the competition, and the fact that, uh, you, know, you know, there's just more and more user-friendly ways to get into the space um, and, and be able to sort of participate in this yield, I think is, has been really, really important for the growth of the ecosystem. Yeah, and um, just to go off what, what Paul said, I mean, I think in terms of what spurred it, definitely, I think everyone points to Compound as the kind of the thing that, that you know, tipped it over the edge. Um, most of what is being done in DeFi was technically possible before last summer. It was just that, you know, conceptually, that really, that really opened it up for people in terms of what could be done. Uh, obviously, once yield farming took hold in the, uh, in the crypto space, then it, it kind of ran off on its own, right? And I almost equate it to a similar, it feels similar to um, the 2017 crypto ICO craze, just in terms of there's obviously a fair amount of speculation. There's a lot of new money pouring into the space. Um, and I think both of those things obviously start to drive innovation because people are trying to take advantage of those scenarios. Um, so I think you have this, this tipping point of compound 
you have a lot of new money, new interest, press, you know, kind of the, the hype cycle that, that begins off the back of that. And then um, in a much more macro sense, uh, right? I mean, it's, it's people becoming more financially literate. Um, you know, the GameStop uh, saga is a, is a big example of that, that you have a, a huge swath of people that are much more efficient or much more literate in terms of markets and how to, how to navigate them. Um, and they realize that the existing financial system isn't specifically built to serve people. So uh, everyone's, you know, gathering their resources and, and building the new system for, for themselves and for each other. Terrific. Thanks so much, uh, both of you, for the answers. And I guess you touched really important points that we will be talking about later in the conversation. But let's start with uh, uh, the main point of DeFi. I mean, obviously, decentralized finance is bringing a whole new parting uh, to the way people do finance uh, globally. And I mean, it's, it's disrupting the financial ecosystem in several verticals. Uh, some of them is lending, financial exchanges, derivatives, payments, even insurance. But I mean, what is your opini opinion in the long run and from a, a scalability and sustainability standpoint, which of those uh, use cases has more uh, potential? I don't know, uh, Paul, we can begin with you. Yeah, so I think, I think for us, um, you know, we are excited about quite a few of those verticals. You know, we've made investments into lending protocols like Compound and Aave on the payment side. You know, we made an early investment into Luna, Terra, uh, which is based in, in Korea and, you know, has a uh, sort of e-commerce uh, payments token. And they've launched, you know, a couple of other projects, you know, that are built on top of Terra. And then, you know, we are diving into decentralized insurance. You know, I think for us, like what we've seen so far is, you know, lending and borrowing, you know, has been a, a fairly huge use case for the ecosystem. And again, a lot of it is around speculation. And so I think that that will continue to you know, evolve, but also continue to do well. You know, we may see some things around fixed term lending and borrowing. I know that you guys talked about collateral. I think there'll be some innovations there and we can, we can talk about that later on. I also think that, you know, just being able to, you know, being able to aggregate uh, liquidity and being able to provide a, a seamless exchange experience, whether it's uh, directly on an exchange or whether it's some sort of aggregator, I think will be, you know, extremely important going forward. You know, we've invested into something like one inch. And so I think things like that, where, you know, you can make the user experience because this space is you know, a bit more open and a bit more fragmented, you know, if you can have user experiences and platforms that really just make it a lot easier for people to, you know, gain liquidity and gain access to the space, I think that's also going to be very, very important going forward. And then of course, you know, with what's going on in terms of security and, you know, you know, some, some, you know, especially if we want more institutional investors coming into the space, I do think we have to, you know, provide things that, you know, can help de-risk the space. And I think insurance is, is one of those things. And it's probably going to evolve quite a bit, you know, especially as some of the legacy insurance companies are going to try to figure out how to get in. But then there's also decentralized models out there. So I actually think that all of it coming together, 
you know, will be very, very important. You know, obviously starts off with speculation, but hopefully we get to some more, you know, practical and, and real world use cases uh, where people can actually, you know, be able to get loans and lend without having to spend, you know, $50 or $100 on gas prices. And I hopefully, I think that'll, that'll come soon enough. Thanks, uh, Thomas. What, what's your point of view in this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a really interesting space to watch because um, in addition to all of the innovation that's happening, right, there's also some recreation of things that have been around forever. Obviously, exchanges, lending, borrowing, those are at least conceptually um, very old school financial instruments, so to speak. And so there's there's certain efficiencies and certain other attributes that are being added to those, um, to again, those kind of old traditional models, uh, particularly, the, right, most of it is, is based around the peer-to-peer -peer model, lending, borrowing, almost um, unless it was unless it was person to person in a very small way, the traditional financial system depended on third parties and there therein lies the, the innovation. So I like to think of it in terms of those two categories of you know what's being recreated in a better way, um, recreated from the old financial system and then what are some of the new models that are being uh, created that that just simply weren't possible before. Some of those are obviously not um, always maybe for the betterment of the system, right We've seen, the impact that flash loans have had. Uh, and, and for those who aren't familiar flash loans, just the ability for someone to borrow typically a large sum of money in a single transaction and, and then pay it back in almost within that same transaction, so, so to speak. Um, it's, it's a little more technical than that, but that's the gist of it. And with that, you can manipulate markets, you can do all sorts of other things, but that's something that, that simply wasn't possible previous to, uh, to blockchain or crypto. And so, um, you know, with that kind of framework in mind, going back to your, your question around what is the most promising and scalable, I think, you know, there's certain, certainly a lot of promise where we're taking existing systems and making them better, making them more efficient. Um, you know, you talk about uh, general just exchanges and markets and you're taking a, a platform like Synthetics, which where you can buy and sell synthetic equities uh, and now that market is 24/7 and global instead of instead of nine to five and you know based on geographic boundaries. So I think that's a, a you know order of magnitude better in some ways. And so I think um, those are the ones where there's certainly a lot of long-term scalability, proven demand, proven supply. Um, they're not going anywhere. And then obviously on the riskier end of the spectrum is going to be those those things that are completely net new because this technology has completely unlocked a new a new use case uh and that's obviously a little bit more a little more iffy in terms of what the the future holds for it today we have a boom in crypto and we have decentralized exchanges and they are kind of you know crypto exchanges within the decentralized finance ecosystem that allow for direct peer-to-peer -peer transaction to take place without any intermediaries such as uniswap for instance ox and at the same time, we also have other centralized exchanges such as Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini, and other ones that are thriving. What's going to happen with the decentralized exchanges if they continue this growth? Are going to disrupt, are going to threaten decentralized exchanges such as Coinbase? Yeah, you know, it, it's similar to, it's similar to paper money and, and digital money. I think right now, 
uh, both can coexist and you know both can can thrive and so um, you know whether paper money will completely go away I, I I don't know but I can definitely see digital money you know overtaking paper money um, in in the long term and same thing with sort of centralized finance and decentralized finance you know we've already seen Uniswap you know taking significant volume and on certain days even doing more volume than Coinbase and so you know as I'd say in the short and medium term both are going to sort of coexist you know one of the big differences between a Coinbase and a Uniswap is the fact that you know decentralized exchanges um, aren't doing any KYC and so, you know, I think as, you know, as an institutional investor um, and, and, and that plus like you're not really bringing fiat um, sort of capital, uh, it's, it's much tougher uh, to get fiat capital into decentralized exchanges right now. You have to probably go to a centralized exchange and then move it over to decentralized exchange. And there's probably some more regulation that's gonna <laughs> be put onto at least those centralized exchanges at first. But, you know, for, for now, I mean, you know, larger pools of capital and, and larger pools of liquidity for some of the larger market cap tokens are going to reside on the centralized exchanges. But with the decentralized exchanges, you know, I think that's where you get more of the innovation right now. And therefore, I think that's where you can get a, a ton of volume. I mean, that's where most of the long tail tokens are going to start off and reside. I think that's where you start getting different types of assets that you probably won't get on Coinbase uh, anytime soon, such as, you know, synthetic types of assets, NFTs, you know, anything that can be tokenized uh, can hopefully be put on or wrapped into some sort of decentralized exchange and, and start off over there. So, you know, I think really it's, it's exciting to have you know, the flexibility and all of the fragmentation on these decentralized exchanges. And I really could see most of the trading, you know, happening on these exchanges, these decentralized exchanges. But I do think that the centralized exchanges, you know, will be around and will serve their, you know, specific use cases around things that are going to be a bit more regulatory compliant. And, you know, I think with the decentralized exchanges, uh, what can really help them even sort of just gain more market share and volume, I think, is, you know, potentially being able to have more scalability, you know, maybe potentially sort of solving fiat on ramps and uh, making having more tools so that institutional capital can actually participate in the space. No, that's great, Paul. That's a great answer. And I, I, I am, I'm glad that you touched the point of uh, the flexibility of these uh, decentralized exchanges. And I think it's important just to mention one of the a great and most uh, promising uh, characteristics of DeFi is just their ability to to build more pro protocols on top of other protocols as, as if they were Lego blocks. So, are you? What's the potential of these decentralized exchanges now that they are thriving to just start uh, adding up new protocols such as lending, market making, stable coins, uh, synthetic synthetic assets, as as you as you mentioned. I know, Thomas, what's your point of view on, the, on these? Um, you know, I think, I mean, Paul brought up a really good point about the, the kind of balance that needs to be struck, or the, or the tension, I should say, um, between the pros and cons of, of centralized and decentralized. Um, one being regulated primarily fiat on ramp, of course, on the centralized side. Uh, but then on the other side, you get, you get decentralized, which 
isn't constrained by the the same kind of regulations or responsibilities to investors because it's a it's a protocol versus a um, you know versus a centralized exchange, obviously run by a corporation more so. And I think that advantage, um, at least in the long run, is really interesting because you have, uh, for example, um, you know, Sushi Swap was effectively a, a fork of Uniswap, and it proved that that liquidity or capital wasn't a moat. So lots of capital flowed over to SushiSwap simply because they were offering, offering those users a, a better deal. And so the ability to your point about the Legos and, and the ability to, to stack things on top of each other, to fork a protocol, you know, make, make tweaks to slightly serve the market a little bit better, a little bit more effectively, um, is gonna continue, continually, uh, you know, hopefully drive down prices, drive down fees, um, make it a much more efficient market. And I think being able to move faster like that uh, in, in the broader sense, move, moving fast as a, as a um, you know, decentralized economy versus the, the centralized version. Um, the pace of innovation is going to be much faster. And, you know, my view is that, that the end user is going to benefit and likely all of the, the market participants are going to benefit as well. Um, so I think that that takes shape in a, in a couple of ways. I mean, one, being able to participate in governance, right? You can't vote on on how Coinbase uh, operates. You can, however, vote on MakerDAO, Uniswap, Compound, et cetera. Um, you can go become a token holder and participate in the governance of those protocols. Um, and again, the, the forks and, and also, um, you know, well, I, I won't go further than that. I think those are the, the two biggest pieces that I would, uh, I would call out. And for instance, DeFi, obviously we know that it offers fast, it's a fast growing ecosystem and it has a lot of innovation in multiple projects. So in 2019, Coinbase provided $2 million for lending protocols such as Compound and DYDY to inject more liquidity into the system. And not only that, but also in order to be competitive and retain market share, centralized exchanges are investing in some of those, you know, these type of protocols. Those centralized exchanges most for mutually beneficial relationships with DeFi platforms and products? And also what are the inherent risks of centralized exchanges holding a large percentage of any protocol token supply? What's your point of view, Paul, since you also have investments in, in, in one of these uh, uh, exchanges? Yeah, so, you know, the thesis from 2000 and 13 until even now has been <clears throat> to invest into centralized exchanges. And so we've been doing it since since the very beginning. You know, we are, um, you know, in, in Mexico, actually, we're one of the largest shareholders of Bitso. And we think that they are very, very exciting. And so, you know, for us, I mean, you know, we think that, again, as I mentioned before, I mean, centralized exchanges are very, very important, um, you know, for this for this ecosystem, especially right now as we're bringing institutional capital. But, um, you know, it makes sense for them to continue to figure out, you know, what can be disrupted to their own business and stay on top of things. And so therefore, you know, Coinbase Ventures and all these guys have venture arms that are, you know, investing into all of these different DeFi projects and, figuring out ways to, you know, in, incorporate them. And one of the ways could be around just building a better relationship to list those tokens. Another way could be offering some of those yields to their consumers. And then, you know, of course, that means that they, 
will be having you know tokens within their hands and uh, I think in terms of the risk of just centralized ownership I think it goes beyond just exchanges but it goes to funds too and it goes to anybody that wants to buy into these protocols and have a vote on you know the direction of you know where these protocols go and I think that's something that is going to just evolve over time in terms of governance. You know, I think there are ways that, you know, maybe we can keep governance uh, a bit more decentralized. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it really starts off with, you know, how these protocols are, are doing their fundraising and, and sort of distributing the tokens early on and over time, especially to their users. And then I think it's really just about you know, getting platforms and educating folks to actually participate in governance. And I think that will lessen the effect of large shareholders or large token holders, could be the exchanges, could be the funds, et cetera. So I think more active participation can really just help dampen, uh, you know, sort of uh, centralized ownership. But I think it eventually will happen because, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, if these protocols are, are thriving and doing well, people are going to want to at least speculate if not actually use those protocols. And then I think there could be some things around governance where maybe there's, um, you know, uh, even though you have tokens, maybe there's a certain limit that when once you pass, you only have a certain number of votes just to be able to maintain uh, a decent, decent decentralization of, of, of power. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, I think active participation is definitely going to be really key for all of these governance protocols. Let's talk about collaterals. So, I mean, at the end of the day, DeFi protocols act as liquidity pools and are the same users of the decentralized apps who provide the liquidity for the, the whole uh, lending protocols, for example, to, to run correctly. However, I mean, given the, the whole you know, volatility of, of Ethereum, for example, and also, you know, as, as Thomas mentioned, uh, there, there's missing this this part of the KYC and managing the risk of each user uh, capabilities. I mean, we are seeing high collateral ratios. There is an over collateralization of the whole value you want to lock into any certain protocol. So, Thomas, how do how do you see these uh, collateral collateralization levels will continue to grow or, or to minimize in the in the near future? Um. <clears throat> You know, near future, I think if, if we're talking at least a year or two, so maybe a flexible near future, um, my view is that they'll they'll ultimately shrink. And that's probably for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, you have, it, well, one caveat is it, it depends on on which asset we're talking about, right? If, if you're talking about Bitcoin, um, we've seen the volatility in the Bitcoin market. So it makes sense to have a, a higher collateralization ratio. Um, in the future, if you're talking about, let's say you're able to tokenize real estate and use that as, as collateral, that's probably a different scenario, right? Because real estate's traditionally relatively stable um, as an asset. So, so being able to, um, you know, obviously the, the ratio should be closer to one to one. Um, I think that coupled with the fact that uh, we're gonna have these markets are gonna continue ma to mature. So, you have particular lending and borrowing pairs that mature, market size is gonna increase. And therefore, um, in theory, both volatility will go down overall, as well as any ability for particular actors to, to influence those markets is gonna decrease as a result. Um, 
So you're not going to have have a big as big of swings or the ability to to influence those swings. Um, furthermore, you know, we as an ecosystem, investors overall, as the space matures, are going to have a better understanding of the nature of these assets, particularly completely new ones, right? Crypto assets, um, different bundles, ETFs, etc. So as the understanding and kind of education of the market for those assets matures, I think again, maybe it's not that the um, well, as our understanding matures, I think we'll be able to get more accurate in terms of how we value those assets and therefore how we should collateralize them. So um, all of those things, I think, pretty much point to just a more efficient market uh, and overall decreasing collateralization ratios. You know, I think I think the the asterisk there is that that's going to be coupled with uh, continuing uh, a continual kind of new new asset creation right there, we're not done uh, creating assets yet there's new ones being made every day new synthetics etc so uh there's going to be a balancing act there but i'd say overall it's the, tr the trend is going to be downwards recently we have an issue between robin hood and gamestop uh, and, and and basically robin hood they were facing liquidity crisis and they stopped you know the trading of gamestop so how do the uh, centralized exchanges manage liquidity and what's your expectation in terms of regulatory matters, Paul? Yeah, so, you know, with, with the GameStop and, and Robinhood fiasco, I mean, I, I think on a high level, I, you know, it, it, was, it was interesting. You know, we, you know, you know, when we saw that, we thought, hey, like, it, it, that's kind of the beauty of decentralized exchanges is that, you know, it's really community owned and, you know, you can't really have someone just kind of say, hey, you can't stop trading a certain pair. And uh, it was, as we were thinking of that, you know, the, the prices of some of these DeFi decentralized exchange tokens kind of went up. And, you know, I, I think in terms of just, you know, regulation and, you know, being able to kind of do something like that, on a decentralized exchange, it just doesn't happen. And so I, I guess that's the beauty of our space is that we just have a lot more sort of freedom and flexibility. I, I think in terms of liquidity, yeah, liquidity can be very, very challenging in the space as a whole. And, you know, that's why we are looking to invest into aggregators out there because of just the fragmentation of liquidity in the space. You know, we've invested into CFI aggregators, you know, prime brokerage type services because of just the inability to sort of even access some of these markets from a regulatory perspective. Um, you know, I think as a US user, I'm fairly limited in terms of which offshore exchanges I can actually access. And so not having to worry about onboarding and setting up, um, you know, accounts even at these exchanges. And then of course, figuring out how to route orders around so I can get liquidity you know, we invest into, you know, sort of prime brokerages like like Amber and order execution desk. And then I think the same thing is going to exist for DeFi, whether it's one inch or matcha, et cetera. So I think, you know, as there's more freedom and flexibility in the space, there needs to be, you know, some some folks that can just really obfuscate the uh, complexity of, of finding liquidity across all these different markets. And um, I, I think we are having some of those problems be solved by some of the startups out there and therefore you know some of these aggregators might actually take over as the front end of where users interact with to do all of their sort of trading 
for instance, you know, Thomas mentioned uh, sushi swap. I mean, there can be many, many forks of Uniswap that exist out there that gain a lot of liquidity, and therefore, you know, users are going to be, you know, eventually confused on which fork to sort of jump on. Might as well just go to one platform to just take away all those complexities. Okay, and let's talk about the, the, the fees, the transactional fees. So obviously, I mean, DeFi has been growing exponentially for the last year, but as this growth happened, uh, we also saw the transactions fees grow a lot. Uh, we, we, we went from around $1, $1 in October last year to up to uh, $22 or even more dollars uh, right now. So obviously, this is uh, an indication of the whole thriving of, of, of the whole uh, DeFi ecosystem. But what do you think, Thomas? Could users be discouraged by, from using the network because of the high, fee, the high fees? And I mean, would DeFi protocols adoption would suffer from this? Yeah, I, th I think it, it's an interesting problem, right? It's a little like the, uh, I don't know if it's a saying, but um, no one goes to that bar anymore because it's too crowded. And it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of an oxymoron. I think there is some discouraging happening though. Um, you know, I mean, I was just teaching, teaching my, my little sister's boyfriend about crypto and telling him how to get on board and you know, go through the centralized onboarding process, et cetera. Um, and then he immediately ran into the fees, right? And he was discouraged from running certain experiments. So I think there's certainly a lot of uh, renewed interest as we've already talked about just generally in the crypto space. But at the same time, there is kind of a glass ceiling or an upper, upper limit on in terms of what you can do with a small amount of money for it to be worth it, unless you're willing to pay that fee just for the sake of your education. Um, and so I think, you know, there's there's a limit on the experimentation. There's certainly a bias towards towards whales, right? In the crypto community, anyone with a ton of money uh, is known as a whale. So when you're moving a million dollars, you can pay your, your $100 fee or your $4,000 fee, and it might be worthwhile. Um, so I think that's that's an interesting bias. It, it certainly is driving innovation on the layer two and ETH2 uh, you know, work, the developer work that's being done. There's also more work being done on interoperability, bridges between chains, Polkadot, Avalanche, et cetera, which I think is is a good incentive for the space overall for us to like build that infrastructure uh, in short order so that so that we don't run into this problem continually throughout the future. Um, and then I, th I think Paul brought up a good point about the kind of the abstraction layer that might be built on top of some of these things, right? One inch is a great example. Um, I was doing that manually before before the, the DEX aggregators came around. And I think something similar could be done um, if it's not being done already in terms of, uh, you know, can you pool your, your funds with others to, to basically help neutralize the fees? Can you, um, you know, almost like joining a, a mutual fund, but it's for a single transaction to, to give everybody a metaphor. Um, I think there's going to be some innovation that's that's driven around that, but in the short term, uh, I think your the kind of the assumption made in your question is relatively accurate. It's definitely hurting the end user because it's kind of the opposite of what what crypto's original promise was, which was the cheap movement of value across the internet. And and so far, that's uh, in the last year, I should say, it's been kind of proven to be the opposite. Another consideration to build decentralized application DApps is obviously choosing a robust blockchain protocol that is cheap, reliable, fast, and user-friendly. Is there an ideal protocol to build DeFi projects, Paul, Thomas? 
Yeah, Paul, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this before I throw in my Kool-Aid answer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was gonna I was gonna say, I mean, I, I feel like I, I know where Thomas might be going with this, but you know, I, I guess from a a person that has a stake in a few different protocols for, for building DeFi on, I mean, I think right now most people are starting with Ethereum because of just like what you guys mentioned. Legos and, and building blocks, right? Like the Legos and building blocks and and, and composability is is just uh, it's it, it's it's there with Ethereum. There's there's the assets already locked up there. It's um it's it's where the momentum has been and it's where the education has been. And so you know I I think it just makes a lot of sense to to start there. But you know I, I know that we're gonna get into things like Binance Smart Chain or there's things like Solana that have been proven already to, you know, work very well for certain applications that need very, very high throughput. And, you know, it could mean things around microtransactions. It could mean things around, you know, social, um, which, you know, just uh, take a lot of just, just throughput because a lot of things are, are going on. And so, for those types of transactions, maybe you're on gaming too, you just need a lot more um, scalability. And therefore, you know, things like Solana, things like Binance Smart Chain, maybe Flow for NFTs, like those things are starting to get traction for use cases outside of DeFi. And I, I think going forward though, you know, we are going to see even just more competition for DeFi and we're seeing a lot of things happening on Polkadot, at least in terms of entrepreneurs moving there. Some things a little bit on Near, some things around Avalanche. I think what's really important is to build those bridges um, and, and make things a little bit easier for people to move across different platforms for development and for assets, and then also other tools for developers to, to build on top. And then I think we can see a little bit more diversification in terms of platforms that you know people are building uh, DeFi projects on. I also think that there is an advantage to be sort of cross-platform. We've seen this a little bit with One Inch moving to Binance. We've seen this with, um, you know, other platforms that are just wanting to just tap into the marketing and the user base of just being on another platform and just giving people sort of that option. Um, so I, I think it's almost like at the end of the day, I mean, we have a bunch of these different uh, phone platforms, you know, I guess uh, right now it's mostly Android and iOS, but I think a lot of mobile apps out there have a version for each of those and maybe it might be a bit more fragmented uh, in the in the sort of blockchain side, but it, I do see a lot of these guys just going cross platform and just making sure they tap into all these different communities. Yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, Paul called up something really interesting, which was uh, the different attributes of, of each chain, right? So I think asking which which blockchain is best for a particular for a particular developer protocol if you're launching one or if you're investing in a in a startup that's launching one and they're debating between them. Um, you know, at the moment it's a little bit like asking which which car is best for just period, right? You wouldn't go off-roading in the Tesla, hopefully. Um, and so you understanding the specific use case you're optimizing for, like Flow is a great example. Um, doing that on Ethereum right now would be prohibitive because people would see, you know, a hundred dollar fee transaction come through on their credit card and probably 
not purchase another another top shop. Um, and so I think applying the use case to the particular um, blockchain and and I hadn't honestly thought of it too much, but I could see in the future when we work it out technically um, another abstraction layer to that point too, right? Where you're able to interact with one inch and you're you're pulling from different markets from different protocols and the end user might not even realize that that the assets technically on one chain over the other or that you know that there's an atomic swap being done in the background. Um, you know, it's it's similar to kind of to today's internet where there's there's a whole lot of of uh, work being done and transformation to data that's being done, which which the end user doesn't see because they don't care and nor should they. Uh, so I could see us moving that in that direction. Terrific. So let's talk about the the risks of of DeFi. So just just for a little bit of context, for example, last October, DeFi protocol Harvest Finance was hacked. It lost around twenty four million dollars. And I mean, there are certainly a lot of risks still regarding the whole DeFi uh, use uh, in, a, in, a, in a more larger scale, scale. Some of them are obviously the hacking and exploit of smart contracts. Other is, you know, the community, the community governance or also just having one admin uh, having the, the key to, to change the protocol. <clears throat> Sorry. So obviously there are uh, a lot of regulatory issues and tax laws. That are need to that are need to be addressed. Uh, Paul, what is your view about the new regulation and how will it be? Uh, how will it affect the the development of DeFi? Yeah, you know, I think I think in terms of regulation so far, there hasn't been, you know, as much as what people would would maybe want. Uh, you know, I think the only regulation that I can sort of think about would be, you know, as you have assets flow back to these centralized exchanges, those guys have to do sufficient sort of tracking and KYC. And that's why companies like Chainalysis and Elliptic guys, you know, uh, just, just basically uh, software that's basically tracking addresses and trying to tag them and, and provide more information for these exchanges um, to figure out like nefarious use cases and, and identities and things like that are becoming more and more valuable. But outside of that, I mean, you know, there hasn't been too much talked about in terms of, you know, these these utility tokens and um, being used for governance and then having sort of value and fee accrual going back to these tokens, which make it seem like they could be securities, maybe, maybe not. I mean, a lot of these things are really just kind of going forward. And, you know, I think the SEC is you know, obviously, you know, taking a look at this and, you know, similar to what happened in 2017, I think they're probably wanting to maybe not just just curtail the, the entire growth of this, but really just trying to make sure that obvious bad actors are being pointed out and, uh, you know, while they sort of learn about these things. So that's, that's one thing. And that's why a lot of money is being spent on legal, trying to, you know, de-risk things in terms of entity formation, de-risk things in terms of, you know, contracts and distribution. So, you know, that's something that's going to have to be figured out over time. And I'd say the other risk around governance, you know, we've talked about a little bit, that's going to be continuing to evolve. And then a third risk, which I think is very, very paramount, I think it's probably top of mind for every single project that's going to launch a token these days is around security. And, you know, Thomas may have some, some views uh, from there because consensus, you know, provides, uh, you know, a service for, companies, but really like I'm, 
I'm talking to our companies and that's the one thing that they're worried about, which is rightfully so, because there's been so many hacks that have happened. And how do you even, even if you wanted to get this done, I mean, for some of the quote unquote top firms out there, there's a wait list until September, October to get your, your project audited. And, you know, you obviously want to launch during a bull market, you know, because everybody just, you know, has, has their tokens go up in value. So I think that's something where hopefully there's just more and more credible security firms that come out there and more and more credible security best practices, more and more infrastructure around insurance that can provide options for protection. But I think that's the, I think that's the biggest issue in the industry right now. How do we sort of get security? How do we get protection to as many, many consumers and projects as possible? And Thomas, today we have seen a, a great relevance from non-fungible tokens, NFTs. We have seen RT, the community of RT is going into that one. And a couple of weeks ago, a couple of days ago, we saw a record-breaking NFT sale for almost $70 million. What's the relationship between DeFi with NFTs and which use cases will arise from the NFT trend? Yeah, um, this is a fun one, right? So the NFT kind of killer use case, at least the first one out the gate has been uh, obviously art with the sale of the, the Beeple that you recommended or that you mentioned. Um, one interesting thing to call out, you know, the way NFTs are coded, at least on Ethereum is um, you don't actually have control over the, the image that you're purchasing, right? It's kind of a, without going too far down the rabbit hole, you're, you're purchasing the rights to a hash that points to a particular uh, URL or a particular um, IPFS endpoint. And so I can go down and, and download the same image that that person bought with their NFT. I just don't have the, the uh, kind of that, that, legal, that legal document, so to speak, in the form of an NFT. And so I think, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out, right, in terms of actual rights ownership, um, some of the breakings of these, these links or these URLs, and, and suddenly the NFT you thought you owned no longer effectively exists. Uh, so that's kind of a long-term, just quick comment for, for everyone's context. Then in terms of the intersection between DeFi and NFTs, it's very interesting. I mean, we have one of our employees started a project, uh, Don't Buy Meme, and it's specifically at that intersection. So you, you stake tokens and in exchange, uh, or sorry, in return, you receive their particular, uh, their particular token if, for which you can buy art. So you can buy NFTs after, after staking tokens and you're, you're kind of farming NFTs is, is how they, they think of it. Um, so that's kind of like step, step one, I guess, the kind of the obvious intersection. And then the, the one that goes beyond that, I think that's really interesting is um, when you think of NFTs, uh, assuming they stand up to the steps of, test of time, and apply them to other things outside of art, right? So stock photography, textbooks, concert tickets, all of these things where you need to verify ownership of something and that something can be digital. Uh, then you have a really interesting um, intersection of the two spaces where, right, what's, what's the secondary market for NFT concert tickets? And how does the, the value flows from that marketplace go back to the original um, potentially musicians or the initial concert issuers. So I, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know, call me a, a realist, but I think there's a huge opportunity for some of those kinds of traditional markets where you're, you're bringing traditional assets on chain and then you are tokenizing them with a, you know, through an NFT um, process. 
providing ownership to individual users, but then there's there's marketplaces around those. I would say that's that's probably the kind of as adoption continues to increase, that's going to be a massive play for for that intersection between the the two spaces. Terrific. So I mean, both Consensus and Pantera are among the the few and top VC firms investing in DeFi. So we want to know your point of view. What protocols are showing more attractiveness towards investors? And also, we will see more VCs entering into this space in the future. I know, Paul, we can begin with you, perhaps. Yeah, so I think in terms of, I think in terms of assets, I mean, you know, right now, I mean, we, we think there's still a lot of, you know, room for, you know, decentralized exchanges, decentralized aggregators, decentralized lending protocols. And, uh, you know, sort of going forward, I mean, in terms of, you know, DeFi, I mean, I think we could start seeing more and more excitement around, you know, things like synthetics. I mean, I think those are going to get a lot more attention. You know, maybe we'll start seeing things that, you know, can't be done before, like you know, sort of like no loss lotteries or maybe things like prediction markets. I mean, I think there's a lot of different things that uh, can be built and, and gain quite a bit of traction. And then of course, like, I think there are things around, you know, better uncollateralized lending, decentralized insurance. So just things that sort of just support the space that I think uh, are going to continue to get funded. In terms of traditional VCs that, that get in, I think they're very, very interested in the space and they're going to gravitate towards, you know, sectors that they can understand a little bit more. And so things that look like exchanges, things that look like wallets, things that look like enterprise SaaS. And so, you know, I think one of the areas that they may be investing into more are centralized infrastructure for DeFi. So it could mean things around like, you know, staking companies, things around, uh, you know, node operators and, and, you know, things that basically bridge maybe enterprise to, to DeFi, I think could be sort of interesting. And then I think eventually they will be getting into, um, you know, more DeFi opportunities. Some of that may be investing into funds to start off with or some, some other managers, but, um, or maybe even things that, you know, sort of help aggregate the space like um, DeFi indexes or DeFi uh, ETF providers and things like that. Yeah, um, I mean, I completely agree with, with everything Paul just said. I think a few other spaces that are maybe one, one step away from the specific kind of quote unquote obvious um, elements of DeFi, like you mentioned about wallets and exchanges, right? The, the, the kind of first use cases that come to mind. Um, I certainly think there's room for more dev tooling, institutional picks and shovels. So there's, you know, there's a number of institutional custody providers. If you're a large company holding crypto, uh, you may want a professional to, to basically hold and manage that for you. So what, you know, what comes after that in terms of those, those kind of enterprise applications or, or, or um, institutional applications? Uh, there's also certainly room for Harkening back to, to what I said at the beginning, moving up the financial stack. So we've covered off on a lot of the foundational elements. So looking ahead at, at derivatives, synthetics that Paul mentioned, um, increased user experience. I think there's there's 
if anyone's tried to to use crypto as a brand new user, you know, you you see the business opportunity for for a better UX right there. Um, and then of course, developer tooling is is always a, a large space, right? We have developer tooling that's still coming out for web two that's doing incredibly well. So continuing to make it easier for developers to build in this space um, is something that'll be promising for for the long term. So guys, it's great all the topics, all the all the all the comments all the experience that you have shared. Are we really moving towards an utopic world where the masses control the market without supervision of central authority? And what's next for DeFi? So, so I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, I think, I think yes and no to your, to your first question about to the, the utopia. Um, so the reason I say that is I think there's a certain amount of, of yes in my answer for people who want to put in put in the work. Um, as we've, we've pointed out and, and as a lot of people on the call realize, um, there is effort in order to, to kind of go fully decentralized, right? I've even, I'm also in the US. Uh, I tried to run an experiment where I was only on crypto for a week while still like maintaining my normal lifestyle instead of just, just holding up for a week. Um, and it's pretty difficult to get a, a debit card that actually runs on crypto or it's difficult to use it just day to day. So if you're if you're going fully bankless, um, you need to be able to put in the work, understand all the tools, understand the risks, understand that you're custodying your assets, et cetera. The other half of that is, is of course, um, you know, perhaps no, because I think most consumers follow the path of least resistance. And so, going towards a centralized service provider may be the answer, which is perfectly fine, but I don't think um, necessarily, you know, just, just like the rest of, of any industry that the, the whole world is gonna go in, in one direction on this. Yeah, you know, I, I'll, I'll just sort of follow on with what Thomas was, was saying that, um, you know, I think the future of DeFi hopefully is, you know, just, just more decentralization. And I think it's going to start off with scalability and I think from there, um, you know, hopefully the removal of some of these hurdles for people to sort of get into this space. Um, even even just yesterday, you know, one of our projects, Anchor, which is a sort of a decentralized yield-bearing product, uh, got a lot of excitement from a lot of non-crypto people that I know. But you know, they were asking me, how do I buy, you know, a certain asset, UST, which is a sort of a a dollar stable coin um, type instrument on a different blockchain and no one could sort of figure it out. Uh, there's probably two or three steps that they had to take. And so I think hopefully a combination of scalability, education, getting more people into this space, either doing it directly or through aggregators uh, or through, you know, centralized services that really just kind of take away the complexity, maybe even take away the gas and kind of cover all of that, you know, maybe enable fiat on-ramp and be able to get some of the benefits, you know, maybe not like as high of a benefit as if you participated directly in terms of the types of returns and yields. But I think that's what, you know, will get more and more capital and more and more, you know, people into this space. And that's what I think the future of DeFi is, is hopefully being able to get anybody um, access to financial services that uh, you know they might not be able to get or not get as well through a sort of a, a bank or anything that's that's currently centralized for them. Yeah, no, I would just triple down on, on Paul's last point about um, you know being 
I would imagine most people on this call, uh, as well as myself, um, have access to relatively traditional banking systems that, that work quite well, right? My credit card works pretty well at the store. So um, the need for me to use crypto is, is obviously more, more, I guess, intellectual and, and also, of course, business related. Um, however, there's, there's obviously huge numbers of people who, who will truly benefit from this technology and it's, it's solving those, those UX education market access hurdles, uh, that the Paul mentioned. So I think there's a massive, a massive, um, opportunity there. It's just when, when will it happen basically? Great. So thank you so much, Paul Veraditaki, partner of Pantera and Thomas Ross, director of, Inve of investment platform consensus for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We also thank all the participants. Thank you to our allies, Asim, Gade, Gan, Generation S, Global Corporate Venture, Innovant 360, IBC, LabCan, BC Academy. See you in our next webinar on April 21st. Thank you, everyone, and have a nice day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Okay.